I should like to call your attention once more to the message of this great third chapter of the book of Genesis, concentrating particularly this evening on the ninth verse, the ninth verse in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Now, before we can possibly understand the meaning of that statement, we must again remind ourselves of the great context. This is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. Because in this one chapter, we really have a history of mankind, a history of the world, and at the same time, all the main outlines of salvation. Here in the chapter, the whole thing is summarized for us, and that is why we are considering it, and that's why we are considering it for the fourth Sunday evening in succession this evening. We are doing so, as I've been explaining, because... There is such a pathetic and ridiculous attitude on the part of so many. It's based on nothing but sheer ignorance that somehow or another the Bible, while a very interesting old book, is a book that's got nothing to do with the modern world and with modern life. It's the very essence of preaching to deal with that situation. Because the Bible really is concerned about nothing but that. It's a timeless book because it is a book about life, a book about the soul. It's a book from God, giving us a view of ourselves and of all others, showing us the causes of our troubles and our problems and our predicaments, showing us the sheer waste of energy apart from anything else that is involved in trying to settle and to solve our problems and our difficulties and perplexities in any other way save that which it offers to us so freely in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, all that I say is summarized for us in this one particular chapter. Here is the history without which we cannot understand why the whole world is as it is tonight, and why any one of us in particular is as he or she is at this moment. There is no other true explanation. There are many others being offered, of course, and we are familiar with them. And our position is that having looked at them all and having believed many of them and having tried them and having found them all to fail, as the Bible told us from the beginning that they must and would, we come back to this. And this authenticates itself in experience. It's been doing so throughout the running century. And its claim is that it is as true tonight as it's ever been and as relevant to the modern man in his predicament as it was a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago and even three thousand years ago. Now, that is the general position. And I've been at pains to emphasize this that this chapter is not only a record of actual history. In addition to that, it is a full explanation 
of what we each one of us do in turn. That is the remarkable thing about the Bible. That is why it gives us so much history. Every one of us in turn repeats what was done at the beginning, and we go on repeating it. That is why there is, as the author of Ecclesiastes tells us, nothing new under the sun. And there really isn't, as far as men is concerned. You look at that like this, if you like. If you think that we're all so different from what men has been in the past, you just make a collection of the things that people are doing in London at this moment. Make a list of them. And you'll find that they were all being done in the Old Testament, not in exactly the same form, perhaps, but the same things are being done. There's no difference there at all. You'll find it all here. There are men in all his cleverness and with all his brilliant advances and inventions seems quite incapable of inventing a new sin. Have you ever thought of that? He can't think of a new sin. They've all been thought of before and they've all been practiced. You see, men, according to the Bible, and I suggest to you that our own experiences and the history of the world at this moment confirms it absolutely, man really as a being doesn't change at all. So that what we find in this third chapter of Genesis is true tonight of every human individual in this world. Very well. What have we seen? Well, we've seen something like this. We've seen that there is but one real cause of all our troubles, and that is a wrong attitude towards God. That's the one and only cause of all our troubles. Everything stems out of that. A wrong attitude to God. And now we've been spending our time in particular in tracing that and analyzing it. We've considered it purely intellectually on one Sunday evening, uh, how man put up his own philosophy and began to query and to question and acted upon his own idea. That was the cause of the whole trouble. Last Sunday night, uh, we went on and we considered uh, some of the things to which th that led. How men suddenly became aware of his nakedness, this awful, dogging sense of loss and of incompleteness, this awareness of a contradiction in our being, and then the futile attempt to deal with it, and the failure that's quite inevitable, and then the sense of guilt and of shame, the fear of life and the fear of death, all that, it came at once, and we all know it, it's being repeated in everybody's experience, and then finally, you remember how even when God uh, comes to us, we run away from him because of our totally wrong idea concerning him, Man's final tragedy is that he refuses the one thing that can put him right. The tragedy of man spiting himself, running away from the only one who can really bless him. Very well. Now then, we go on from that point, and because the story goes on. And that is why we are continuing this evening. And that's really the only point I have to make tonight. We've seen what it was that men did in order to produce the fall, and we've seen what he is like as the result of the fall. Well, you might have thought, well, the story ends there, but the story doesn't end there. The story goes on, and the story must go on. And you see, it is a central message of the Bible just to say that, that the story will go on. Now, we'd like it not to go on, we'd like it to stop there. But no, the story will go on and must go on and does go on. And why does it go on? 
Well, the story goes on according to this record. Because whether we like it or not, this is God's world. And we are in God's world. And you cannot stop God coming into his world, into his own property, into his own possession. You see, we never like that. Of course, that's the whole essence of our modern objection to God and the natural men's objection. We think we've got rid of him and finished with God and we are going to do things and we are going to carry on now without God. And we decide to do so constantly. But as I say, the story doesn't end there. You remember that eighth verse, don't you? And uh, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife uh, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the, the trees of the garden, as if to say, if we only get behind there and hide, he'll just walk straight on, and then we'll be able to come out again, and all will be well. And if we hear him again, we'll go back, and on we'll continue. But that isn't the story. The back of the trees belong to God quite as much as the front of the trees. The whole garden belongs to God. The universe is God's. So I say, the story has got to go on, and the story does go on. And this is the first thing, surely, that we all need to learn and to grasp. We're not independent creatures in this world. We don't own it, and we cannot order it, and we cannot decide what happens in it and what's going to happen to it. That's the first great lesson here. It's God from beginning to end. It's God making the world, and it is his world. He owns it, it's his possession. He controls it, he sustains it, he guides it, he interferes with it, he comes into it, he erupts into it. It's always God's. That's the lesson. God coming into the garden. When men thought that he had finished with God. And what God does, you see, as we are reminded here, is this. God continues to speak. That's the thing. It's here from beginning to end again. God made men in his own image and he spoke to him. And men listened and replied, that was perfection, that was paradise. That was men as he was meant to be. Man listening to God. God speaking. It's the greatest thing a man can ever know. To be addressed by God. To be spoken to by God. But man decided to stop that. He didn't want that anymore. He didn't believe that any longer. And as I say, he thought it ended there. But it doesn't. God goes on speaking. He's hidden to hide himself at the back of the trees. But this is what happens. And the Lord God called unto Adam. And said unto him, Where art thou? And he hears it, and he can't avoid it, he can't evade it, and he has to come out of his hiding. Where art thou? And that, my dear friends, is the whole meaning of a meeting such as this tonight. It's God speaking, God addressing us. And God is doing this in so many different ways. Speaks in the conscience, speaks in history, speaks in events. You can't understand history apart from that. You'll get a great deal of it, and certainly the only adequate explanation of it in this book. But even out there in secular history, God is speaking, 
God has an endless number of ways of speaking to us. We are all so deaf as the result of sin. It isn't always an audible voice such as that which was heard by Adam and Eve there hiding behind the trees. Oh, God speaks to us, I say, in thought. Job tells us that he does it at night sometimes when men has become very impervious by dreams and visions in the night. He does it by accidents. He does it by illnesses. He does it by death. Oh, God speaks to men. It's the great message of the Bible. God speaking, God saying things to us. And here, supremely, he does it in this word of his, which is his word addressed to us. And then beyond it all, God speaks to us in his Son. The great opening, you remember, of the epistle to the Hebrews. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake to our fathers in times past through the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us in his Son. God speaking. Now that's the whole message of the Bible, that God is addressing us. Well, very well, let us now concentrate on how he does so, because it's all suggested to us, it seems to me, in this ninth verse and in some of the following verses. The first thing I notice is that God addresses us personally. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Where art thou? Where art thou? Put your emphasis wherever you like. A personal address to Adam. Now, here, it seems to me, is one of the things which we have to grasp at the very outset and at the very beginning. And we all know by experience that there is nothing which we are so slow to grasp and to understand as just this very thing. You see what happens. Before we come to this verse, we find a good deal of conversation by other people. And they've been talking about God. Yea, says the devil, hath God said... And then Eve replies, yes, God has said this and that. Uh, Adam and Eve and the devil, as it were, are having a conversation about God and they're expressing uh, their opinions about God. But suddenly the whole situation changes in this ninth verse. God addresses Adam and Eve hiding behind the trees. And you see at once the positions are reversed. And that is the first thing that happens to a man who is on the way to becoming a Christian. The first thing we become conscious of is that we are being addressed. Or if you prefer it in another term, take it like this. Adam suddenly discovered that he, far from being the investigator, was the one who was being investigated. Adam, where art thou? The Lord God has come down and he is looking, he is investigating, he is searching. Adam and his position and condition are under investigation. Adam, before that, you see, had been walking about this garden. He would listened to the suggestion and he thought he was in a position of supremacy and he was looking on and he was expressing his opinions. But suddenly he finds himself addressed, under examination, investigated. Surely my meaning is perfectly clear. You have a discussion with people about religion and about Christianity. And you'll always find that they talk as the investigators. Ah, 
the, 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 the great brain is going to look into this question of the Bible. He's going to investigate God. Of course, he's got the equipment. He's able to do so. And God, well, God is a kind of specimen, as it were, to put on the table, to be dissected, to be analyzed, to be considered. With our great minds, we look round God. And then we even perhaps dissect and bring out our microscopes. Modern men investigating the universe, investigating religion, investigating God. Man on the throne, on the bench. Ah, yes, he is considered Buddhism and Confucianism, Hinduism. Quite so. Let's try Christianity. Well, now, what about Christianity? I'm not caricaturing it, am I? Haven't we all done this? We imagine that we are the investigators and that we are in a position to investigate. But suddenly men is brought to the realization that he is the one who is being examined. That he's betraying himself without realizing it. And the more he talks, the more he is betraying himself and the more he's being examined and investigated. I don't want to stay with this. But I do want to ask a question. Had you realized, my friend, that in this life and in this world you are on trial? You are not trying. You are on trial. You are being tried. How slow we are to realize this, shall I sum it up by putting it in the form of what a great man once said. He was referring to a man who said that he saw absolutely nothing in the novels of Sir Walter Scott. To which the comment made by this man was that the man in saying that, that he thought nothing about Sir Walter Scott, was not really telling us anything about Scott, but telling us a very great deal about himself. And how true it is. Modern man, you see, doesn't hesitate to dismiss Beethoven. He's not interested in that sort of stuff. And as he says that, I would repeat that he tells us nothing about Beethoven, but he does tell us a tremendous lot about himself. Well, it's exactly the same with regard to this whole matter. We fondly imagine that we are in the position of investigators and examiners but suddenly something happens to us and we are conscious of the fact that we are being looked at, that we are being addressed, we are being spoken to. A word comes to us. Have you reached that stage, my friend? Have you realized that in this life and in this world we are but journeymen and travelers? And that you're not simply a spectator sitting in a gallery looking on at some game that's being played by other people in the arena. Don't you realize that you're in it and that you're involved and that every second you live, judgments are being formed about you. And you are determining not only what happens to you in this world, but in eternity by what you do here. It's you who are involved. But let me put that in a slightly different form. Adam suddenly realized and was made to realize that he was not only being addressed, 
but that it is he himself as an individual and as a person that's being considered. I mean by that that uh, what is under investigation is not merely his ideas and his thoughts and his positions in a philosophical sense, but he himself. And this is absolutely true about us all. Christianity is not a, a matter of opinions. And uh, as God addresses us in these various ways that I've been indicated, he isn't talking to us about our opinions at all. He's not a bit interested in them. But he's interested in us. Where art thou? Thou, I'm speaking to you, Adam. Where are you? That's what God says. But uh, how cleverly we avoid all this. We think it's all a matter of opinions. And we are ready to express our opinions and to have our arguments. And people think that Christianity, as I say, is a matter like that, that if you discuss Christianity, well, what do you start with? Well, you may start, if you like, with the being of God. Well, all right, let's take that up. Then, having dealt with that, you say, well, then there's this question of miracles, of course. Are miracles possible? Can they happen? Well, you spend another evening discussing miracles. This is all discussing Christianity, isn't it? That's what Christianity is about. And then uh, you come to the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the claim the Christian dogma has always said that he was God and men, that there are two natures in that one person. Very well, well, we must spend at least a night on this. Let's have this out. Is that possible? Is it conceivable? And then there's this question of the death on a cross on Calvary's hill. And again, the great doctrine of the church about something called atonement, that one died for others, that it's, he made himself a substitute and so on. Well, we take this up. Is this moral even? Is it conceivable? Can it happen? And we spend a whole night arguing about that. And the whole time, you see, we think we've been arguing and discussing Christianity. There is a sense, of course, in which we have. But there is another sense in which we haven't. Because, my friend, you can not only go to your grave, but you can even go to hell just doing that. Christianity, primarily, is not a discussion about ideas. It is a discussion about you. Adam, where art thou? I'm looking for you. I'm interested in you, the individual person. And, my dear friend, that's the first thing that a man realizes who is on his way to becoming a Christian. The whole of his life he's never faced himself at all. You see, he's been protecting himself. He's been putting up a camouflage to conceal himself. That's the meaning of all the arguments and disputations about these various questions. He's been shielding himself. There are the trees of the garden. We hide behind them. Now, here's something coming which is going to be a little bit personal, we think, and it's going to be difficult. Very well, let's hide behind the trees. And we hide behind the trees of these philosophies and ideas and comparative religions and all these abstruse questions. And as long as we're there, it's all outside us. But God penetrates through it all. It's about you, my friend. You, as an individual, seated in this chapel at this moment. It's all about you and your life and... What you're doing with it and where you're going. Has it come personally to you yet? Or tell me, may I ask another question? Do you resent this personal emphasis? I think I've quoted you before. 
What Lord Melbourne, one of the Victorian Prime Ministers, said in this connection, oh, he spoke for many a modern men. The great Lord Melbourne said, things have come to a very pretty pass if religion's going to start being personal. Ah, oh, religion, Christianity, what is it? Ah, oh, this question of marriage and uh, divorce, that's it. Now, is the church right? And Perhaps someone came expecting that I'd be preaching about that. Not at all, my friend. I know you too well to do that, and I know myself too well. It'll be very nice to sit back and listen to my expression of my opinions on the Archbishop of Canterbury and on these other matters. Wonderful. And we'd have a great discussion, wouldn't we? Yes, but I wouldn't be preaching the gospel. I'm preaching about you. Not about the Archbishop of Canterbury, nor anybody else. Adam! Where art thou? Have you realized that this is a personal matter, a personal decision, a personal coming face to face with God? You are confronted by God. God's addressing you. God's speaking to you, to you. Not interested primarily in your ideas, but in you yourself, as you pass through this life and through this world once and once only. What next? Well, the next step in it is this. He forces us to face where we are and what we are. Adam, where art thou? Where exactly are you and what are you doing there? In other words, this whole business of preaching and of the gospel brings me face to face with the fact of where I am and of where I ought to be. When God, as it were, had come into that garden before, which was called Paradise, Adam was always there to meet him, looked forward to his coming, rejoiced in his coming, ran to meet him with a smile upon his face. For the first time, he doesn't do that. He's hiding behind some trees. And God says, where are you? What are you doing there? You've never been there before. What are you doing there? Come out. That's not the place for you. You oughtn't to be there. You ought to be here. What are you doing there? And that's precisely what God is asking every one of us at this moment. Where are you? Where are you in life and in this world? Let me subdivide it. Where are you intellectually? Where are you in your thinking? Have you really faced all the facts? May I put it as simply and as bluntly and as plainly as this? You may say to me that you've long since rejected Christianity. Well, I only want to ask one question. Have you ever really read the Bible through? Because I find that all of us tend to dismiss Christianity without really knowing what it is. We've never taken the trouble to do so. We've dismissed it as a prejudice. We haven't read the Bible. We haven't even read the New Testament through. We know nothing about the history of the church, but we dismiss it. Now, I say that that's intellectually dishonest. It's not straight. Where are we, I say, in the matter of the mind and the whole process of thought and a whole and a complete view of life? Have we really brought all the factors and all the facts in? Have we brought... Uh, 
life itself in and our conduct and our behavior? Have we really listened to the voice of conscience? Have we really looked into the face of death? Have we looked beyond? Have we considered the testimony of some of the best and the greatest men that the world has ever known? Have we really brought all this in? Have we read the history of revivals? Where are we intellectual? Now, the Bible challenges us to do that. That's the message of the Word of God. It knows perfectly well that we're always hiding behind these intellectual trees. I've already mentioned a large number of them. But as long as you're there, you're not seeing things straightly. You must come out into the open, says the Bible. Let's really face it. Ah, oh, but you say, I've always thought that Christianity is sub stuff. Exactly. That's because you didn't know what it was. You've dismissed it without considering it. It's reasonable. It's argument. It's here. It's got a case. It comes to you as a fully orbed revelation of the truth of God. I mustn't keep you with this. You'll find it in many books. One of them just out recently. Did I mention it the other night or not? Uh, whatever else you may say, you can't dispute the brain power of Mr. C.S. Lewis, can you? Well, just read his latest book, Surprised by Joy in which he tells you something of his history in these matters. But he's only one of many. My friends, it's intellectually dishonest to say that Christianity isn't intellectually respectable. That's hiding behind trees. That's a refusal to come out into the open and really face it all and really try it. So I say that the Bible asks us, where are we intellectually? And in the same way, and perhaps with much more insistence, it comes to us and asks us the question as to where we are morally. Morally. Oh, how much easier it is to be arguing about philosophy and theology than to be facing ourselves in a moral sense. Where are we in the matter of chastity, in the matter of purity? in the matter of honesty, in the matter of soul cleanliness, in the whole matter, I say, of our life and living. Now, my friend, that's the first thing, surely, that we all ought to be considering. Before you try to understand miracles, let me commend to you that you start trying to understand yourself. Why do we go on doing things that we know to be wrong? Why do we get pleasure in doing so? Why do we do them though we know that we'll have pain having done so? Why do we do them? That's the problem. That's the real issue facing man. Not his grand opinions about abstractions, but himself. Adam, where are you? Where are you morally? What are the credit, the moral credit with which you began? What's the account like this evening? Where is it? What if the books were opened in public? What if your life and your story could be flashed onto a screen? You know, see, that's what the Bible's interested in. That's what it's talking about. It's personal and it's direct and it's about our own lives. Let me give you the supreme example of this which is to be found in the Scriptures in the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John in our Lord's dealings with the woman of Samaria. It's all there absolutely perfectly. You remember what happened. Our Lord was tired. He sat down by the side of the well and the woman came along to draw water and at once they began to talk. 
And they began to talk about Jews and Samaritans. They began to talk about the well and the depth of the well to whom had Jacob given it exactly. You remember the questions, don't you? And the woman was enjoying it and arguing very cleverly. Then they go on to talk about God and talk about worship. Should he worship in this mountain or in Jerusalem? That's it. This whole ecclesiastical problem. South India and the new church. And do I believe in this or not? Do I believe in denominations? Oh, it's marvelous. It's wonderful. And on they went. Until suddenly our Lord ended it all by saying this. Woman... Go fetch thy husband and come hither. And the woman had to reply honestly and say, I have no husband. And our Lord looked at her and said, Thou hast said the truth. I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. That's the Lord Jesus Christ's method. He puts an end to all this argument and disputation about the thousand and one questions. He brings it right home to the woman herself. Here is a woman who will talk about God and about worship and about all these things. And she was living in adultery at that very moment. And our Lord makes her face it. Come out, he says, from behind that tree. Come out into the open. I know all about you. Adam, where art thou? Morally. And that is the thing that God is saying to all of us at this moment. My dear friend, face yourself and your own life. What you're actually doing, what you actually are, the thoughts that you fondle, the imaginations that you delight in, the things you do, the things that you know perfectly well as I'm speaking to you are in your mind at this moment and you're ashamed of them and you wouldn't come up into this pulpit and confess that you are guilty of them all. That's what God's talking about. That's Christianity. Adam, where art thou? Come out from that hiding place. Is it clear, my friends? Oh, let me give you just one other illustration of it from the Old Testament, the famous story of David, you remember? David was suddenly tempted, and his lust got the better of him. And he committed adultery, and then to cover it over, he committed murder. And he thought all was well, but God had seen it, and God was displeased, and God sent his servant Nathan to talk to David, and Nathan adopted this form. He put a conundrum to him. He said, O king, he said, do you know what's happened? And he painted a picture of a man who'd got a lot of sheep, and who then stole the sheep of another man whose only sheep it was. And David was filled with wrath and indignation and said, the man who does a thing like that is a man who must be punished severely. Nothing is too bad for him. And Nathan paused and looked at him and said, Thou art the man. I'm speaking about you, David. You thought that I was putting a question of equity to you and discussing a moral problem in general with you. David, king, I've been speaking about you. Thou art the man, Adam, where art thou? It's you, it's your life, it's your moral behavior, it's your total personality that's under investigation. And then the next thing, and it's the last at this point which I've got to emphasize is this. 
when God comes to us and speaks to us less personally, he makes us realize the true nature and character of what we have just been doing. You notice he puts it like this. In the 11th verse I read, And God said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? You see, it brings it right home to Adam and Eve. He makes them see and face the exact nature of what they've been doing. The thing they've done. It isn't just a question of eating fruit. It's that they have broken his commandment. That they've violated his holy law. That they've raised themselves up in rebellion against them. He brings it right home to them. And you know this gospel does that. It not only brings it to me personally and makes a general investigation. It fixes and establishes sin. How does it do it? Well, it teaches me the true nature of sin. I've just been quoting that case of David. Let me come back to it again. David, after he'd seen the truth and after he'd repented, sat down and wrote the 51st Psalm. And in that, when he deals with this very sin that he'd committed, he puts it like this. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. And done this evil in thy sight. What's he mean? Well, he means this. The terrible thing about sin, really the thing that makes sin sin, says David, is not so much that I've been guilty of adultery and of murder, that's bad enough. But the terrible thing is that I have sinned against God. I violated the law of my being. I am a rebel against God. That's the thing that we don't see. We are prepared to admit the category of sin and of wrongdoing, perhaps. But we regard it just as some transgression of a moral code, the breaking of a law, and we say there's no more in it. But, my dear friend, there is. You and I, as human beings, were made originally in the image of God. And we were meant to live a life that such a person should live. We were meant to be in correspondence with God, in enjoyment of God. We were meant to be righteous and holy and true and upright. That is what we are meant to be and what is sin. It's a departure from that. The trouble is, isn't it, that we all tend to think of sin only in terms of particular actions. But the terrible thing about sin is that it's a violation of God's creation. It's robbery of God. It's a spitting into the face of God. And any life tonight which is not lived to the glory of God is in the depth of sin. Now God makes Adam see all this and Eve sees it. And anyone who comes under conviction of sin must of necessity see it. So the final question and the vital question for all of us is just this one. Where are you at this moment face to face with God? Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you delight in him? Is it your greatest concern to please him and to live to his glory and to his honor? God would have you see that unless it is that, that you're a vile sinner. He brings it home to you. You've departed from where he put you. You're hiding somewhere. You're out of the pathway. You're not in the true. You're not in the straight. You're somewhere where you shouldn't be. And you're transgressing this law of your very being. God brings us to see that.
And isn't that the thing that's so lacking in the modern world? There are many people who believe in respectability, but they don't believe in God. And they're as terrible sinners as are the people who are living in the gutters of London at this moment. It's against God. I have sinned, says the prodigal son. I have sinned against heaven and before thy face. And it's always true of us. The nature of sin. But that brings me to my last point, which is this one. That God, when he thus comes to us and addresses us and speaks to us, not only gives us this personal address along the lines I've been mentioning, in order to bring us to repentance, he then proceeds to tell us about judgment. You remember how he did it there in the garden at the beginning? He's been repeating it ever since. It is being repeated in the history of the world and of every human individual at this very moment. God came to them and having drawn them out of the hiding place, they've seen themselves and their sin. God then pronounces judgment. I'm very sorry, my friend. You probably don't like this idea of judgment. No natural man has ever liked judgment. But whether we like it or not, it's a fact. And God himself has revealed it. He revealed it there, I say, at the very beginning. He came after men. You can't get away from God. Of course, you can walk out of this service and say you'll never come back again. But what's the point of that? That's not walking out of God's universe. That's not walking outside the eye of God. Hide yourself. Get away. Rush into the brushwood and into the thickets. And imagine that he won't see you. He'll call you out of it. And he has ever called men out of it. And what is his judgment? Well, you can subdivide it into the present and the future. There is an immediate judgment that always comes because of sin, and as the result of sin, what's that? Well, he pronounces here that there is going to be a perpetual conflict between the serpent and the woman, and the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, a conflict. And isn't it absolutely true? Are we not all in this conflict, and don't we all know all about it? Temptation. Evil, drawing us, enticing us, battling against that which is best and noblest and most upright in us. Don't you see it everywhere? It does it in the newspapers. It does it on the hoardings. It does it in all places of amusement. It does it on the streets. It's the whole problem of life and of existence. The struggle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The moment we enter into this life, we're in it already. The battle of morality, the battle of purity, the battle of chastity, the battle of honesty. And what a fight it is. The current is drawing us down. How difficult to fight against it and to battle upstream. Don't we all know it? It's a verification of God's judgment. And the blindness that sin produces in us prevents us seeing that all that is nothing but a part of God's judgment on sin. 
You see, men thought that by listening to the devil and eating that fruit, he was going to have an easy time, that there'd be an end of conformity to law, that he'd be a god, he'd be absolutely free. But he put himself into the shackles and into the chains, and he's struggling in them ever since. Seed of the serpent, seed of the woman, locked in this endless fight, the hell that life can be to a man. We're all in it, and we've all known it. Not only that, but the sorrow and the suffering. In sorrow shalt thou conceive. In pain and suffering does woman bring forth. You see, it's history, it's facts. But my friend, it's a part of God's judgment. It wasn't meant to be like that. This is a part of God's pronouncement on men in rebellion and sin. What is there a greater joy than the coming of a child into a family? But think of the accompaniments. Think of the strain, the struggle, the suffering, the oft sorrow. It's sin that's produced all that. It's man's wrong attitude to God. It's man's rebellion against God. It's man taking the law unto himself. That's why there's all this suffering and sorrow and illness and disease and pain and problem. But not only that, the very struggle for existence itself. The struggle and the toil of earning one's livelihood. Getting one's daily bread. The hardness, the thorns and the thistles. The competition and the troubles. Why is it that thorns and thistles grow so abundantly? Why is it so difficult to get a crop out of the ground of wheat or of corn? Why is this? Why this ever fighting against it? Everything against us. All we get we have to work for like this with the very sweat of our brow. It's again nothing but a part of God's judgment on sin, my friend. And men's been trying to deal with it. And to cope with it ever since, but he cannot. He would like to get back to that paradise, but he's been driven out of it. God drove the men out of it, and he put the cherubims and the flaming sword turning in every direction. And though men in civilization has been rushing up against that gate and trying to burst his way through, the flaming sword keeps him back. So that the whole story and history of civilization, in a sense, is but the history of futility, the history of failure. Some great historians, you see, are not even Christians at all. They say that in this way, they talk about the cyclical theory of history. We ever seem to be advancing. We're on the point of getting there. But we just go around the other side of the circle and we are back to where we were. Civilization goes round and round in cycles. There's no forward advance. There's no end. There's no reaching of the ultimate objective. It's simply a futile procedure. Round and round we go. We rise, we succeed, we fail, we fall. Down they go. Dynasties, empires, individuals, it's always true. It's the flaming sword and the cherubims. At the east end of the Garden of Eden, men will never get back there by his own effort. He's incapable of it. He's not allowed to do it. He's been driven out. That's the judgment upon sin. 
But that's only the present, and there's something beyond. Unto the dust thou shalt return. Death, physical death. It came in as a part of the punishment of sin. Tennyson tells us that men thinks he was not made to die. That's just a part of his recollection of what he once was. As he is now, he's got the seeds of mortality within him. And the moment he's born, he's beginning to die. There was a little baby born a second ago. You say there, at any rate, is someone who's beginning to live. I can say with equal accuracy, there is someone who has started dying. The first breath is but the first of a series that's leading to the last. That's not being morbid, that's being factual. We are born to die. It comes to pass. Death, the inevitable end, and beyond it, God, facing God. Oh, my dear friends, my time has gone. But you know you've got to face all that. And you don't come to the gospel until you've faced all that. This is no sob stuff. This is no patent remedy. This is not one of your optimistic philosophies. This is not a kind of spiritual coism that says, come along, let's be bright and cheerful and happy and walk with a new step. It's all right. It's terribly wrong. And God would have us see how terribly wrong it is. Do you realize where you are, Adam? Where are you? Where are you at this moment? How long have you lived in this world? How much longer do you think you're going to be here? What have you done with your life? What have you made of it? What of your record? Are you proud of it? What's your achievement? What's your secret life? What's the history of your mind and your thought and your imagination and your heart? What is it? Adam, where are you? In every respect, where are you, men? Where are you, woman? Come out of that hiding place and face it, for you've got to. You're in God's world. You're God's creature. And you can't avoid him. You can't evade him. You can't escape him. You've got to deal with him. And he'll call on you. And if you don't listen to him in life, you'll have to listen to him in death. And when your name is called out at the great judgment throne in eternity, you'll have to stand forward and listen to the verdict. I don't stop there, do I? And you know I don't stop there. But I know this, that nobody is really going to listen to what I'm about to say who doesn't believe what I've just been saying. It's only the desperate who come to Christ. It's only those who know that they're sick who see their need of a physician. And that's the sickness. But thank God... There is the physician. 
I've told you about the judgment, but he went on. There is to be this struggle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. The God who calls you to come out of your hiding place calls you out not only to condemn you, but to tell you that if you believe and acknowledge the condemnation, he has a way to bring you back to paradise. For he has sent his only son, the seed of the woman, into this world to do something which makes, when he advances, the cherubims and the flaming sword to fall back and to allow us in. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, has borne the judgment of the sin of all who believe in him and who look to him. And if you trust in him, he will take you through the gate into the joy of the Lord. And if you enter in with him tonight, you will be able to say, Today, thy mercy calls us to wash away our sin, however great our trespass, whatever we may have been, however long from mercy we may have turned away. Thy blood, O Christ, can cleanse us and make us white today. Thank God for this gospel. Because when all things seem against us to drive us to despair, we know one gate is open, one ear will hear our prayer. If you've heard God speaking to you, you'll cry out unto him for mercy. And he will not refuse you. He will receive you. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. So from your hiding place of failure and shame and misery and unhappiness, come out and cry to him. And he will deliver you. Amen.